Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode number seven. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and this week, we've got a great guest on, Wayne Ferbert, who is the founder of Alpha DNA, the author of Buy and Hedge, and also a former executive at TD Ameritrade. We'll be talking about big data, a lot of analytical stuff. Wayne, how are you? I'm doing great, Derek. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking through the markets and analytics and how that environment is changing uh, the way that investment managers look at investments. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. I think it's a great topic. And whenever I think about the stuff you're doing, and we'll get into it, it always reminds me of, remember the the day after Thanksgiving, and they would do the blimp shot or the helicopter shot of the, the parking lot at Walmart and compare the number of cars in the parking lot one year to the next year. And then it was like the satellite photo of the oil tanker. How big is the shadow based upon the load in there? And and Wayne, I remember even doing, you know, back in 2008, trying to gauge the recovery, I'd park at the airport and I'd try and see, hey, can I actually get to level three or level four, which is a totally, you know, nonsensical way of looking at things. But Wayne, I mean, you're, you're doing things to try and get an edge and you're doing big data, machine learning. I mean, talk a little bit about what you're doing and how it's, it's different. Well, let's break it up into a few sections. I think, I think actually you just touched on the first really interesting section, which is alternative data sources, right? So, you know, we really live at the intersection of both machine learning, anal- machine learning analytics and big data. And the big data that we really focus on is alternative data sources. So what's an alternative data source, right? I think the example you just gave is a really good one, right? Like satellite pictures of how many cars are in the mall, right? And that gives retail analysts some idea of how much traffic is going through the mall. And that should give them an idea of how much revenue maybe the gap might have, or obviously companies with uh, a retail presence. These sort of sources started becoming really popular 20 years ago, right? The satellite images of the malls, the satellite images of the oil fields, right? You know, a lot of those big oil tanks, uh, you know, they, they, the amount of oil that's in them causes them to sink further in their ground. They're on intentionally on these weighted uh, sort of uh, uh, systems. And so the lower the shadow, right? I mean, at any given time, if you buy a satellite image, you know where the, where the sun was at that same exact moment. So by the size of the shadow, you basically can, and you know the, the weight of whatever oil is in those tanks, whether it be you know, light, sweet, crude, or whatever it might be, you can get a pretty good estimate about how, what the inventories are. And if you have view on the inventories, then you have a view on what's on sort of the general supply and demand dynamic for oil. And so commodities traders like to use that. In fact, there's a really great story, right, about uh, Botley Fool got its start because uh, they were based, I believe, in Utah. And they noticed uh, this, this company that just had its parking lot kept growing and growing. And then it started running two shifts. And it turned out at the time to be iOmega, if I remember right, right? The, the guys that started building those, um, uh, you know, the, the, the old disks that we used to, that, that, that the first disks that sort of bumped us up from floppies to really high, high uh, capacity uh, floppies. And that became important as the computer industry was growing. And they actually put a, a buy signal on iOmega and they made a lot of money on it. And that's really what's one of the things that sort of launched them. And those are all the alternative data sources, places where you go to alternative spots to find, you know, infer- interesting information about what is the real supply and demand dynamic that's going on for a company, not the PE ratio, not the price to book, not what's going on on the balance sheet, but what, you know, the, the, some sort of signal or identifier, some marker, right, that tells you something uh, about the actual interaction between clients and a company. And, 
And that's really what, what, what we focus a lot of energy on is the, the world has become so digital that basically these markers have become so di very digital, right? Uh, we all go online and we all cruise the internet and believe it or not, we leave behind a bit of a digital breadcrumb trail. And there are companies that come in behind us and scoop up that digital breadcrumb trail and use it to just measure who has a lot of good interaction with clients, how many clients might be coming to the site, how many, how, what's the bounce rate of a website, how many people are retweeting uh, a particular tweet? How many people are following them? How many people are unfollowing uh, uh, you know, a particular Twitter handle? How many people are downloading an app? Right? How many people are going to the URLs that are associated with those apps? This is all data that is very non-traditional in the sense of, of being used to find investment opportunities, but it is very traditional in the sense of measuring actual customer interactions with brands, particularly in a world where you know, every meaningful company in the S&P 1500 has a website, right? I mean, even if you don't sell any of your products online, you probably at least have brochures online. And even if you don't have brochures, a version of a brochure website, you probably have some sort of support infrastructure uh, for your customers online. And so, you know, it's, uh, that's what we do. And, and that's really one of the things that sets us apart is we've been gathering that data on a real-time basis since 2010 uh, and feeding our database of basically the entire Russell 3000 of the actual digital interaction between customers and the digital brands of the of the companies in the Russell 3000. And it gives us you know, really interesting insight. I, I was it's interesting as you're talking too because I we thought we started out talking about you know the the blimp shot of of Walmart and that was a single location, but what you're doing here with using the online piece is you're really scaling. It's no longer one tank or one store. You're able to scale the entire universe of, of really the globe, right? Yes, it's millions of interactions, right, between clients and, uh, and those particular websites. If you actually think about why it exists, you know, why are we able to get our hands on that data? And, and to be really clear, it's not personally identifiable information. I want people to not be worried that they're about privacy or that they're that there are people that are selling information about, you know, like Derek Moore in Arizona is buying uh, a certain running shoe, right? I don't know that Derek Moore in Arizona is buying a running shoe, right? But, but if you do, right, I, you know, we, we will see sort of that impact of that, of more running shoes being bought, more Nike shoes being bought. And the reason that data exists and companies scoop in and grab up all that data and then, and then sort of roll it up to an analytical level is the same reason that Google and Facebook exist, right? I mean, at their core, those are marketing companies, right? The, the, uh, you know, Facebook creates content to try to draw in people so that it can, you know, sell uh, advertising uh, uh, through and to them. And Google exists for the same reason, right? You search for things online and Google wants to route you to somebody who you might do a transaction with or you might, you might do business with. And that's their primary source of revenue. So, it becomes very critical that those companies are then able, uh, you know, the Googles, the Facebooks of the world, to be able to say to their advertisers, to the people who are buying advertising with them, hey, here's how many people are interacting with you. Here's your bounce rate. Here's the general profile of those people. They're young or they're wealthy uh, or they live in the Northeast or whatever the general interesting profile might be that's relevant to them. So who's buying that kind of data? It's a chief marketing officer, right? If you're, if you're in charge of making sure that the dollars you use to advertise are being spent well between Facebook, Google, and all the other tens of thousands of places you can advertise online, uh, then you want that data to be able to measure that. And so it's that sort of data that we've then taken and said, hey, 
if it matters to a chief marketing officer and all of that chief marketing officer's competitors uh, to understand the general success they're having uh, with their clients and the actual interaction of their clients and, and their brands online, as well as just as importantly, their, their competitors' brands uh, to those same websites, then it should matter to us. And if we can find uh, uh, good signs of traction uh, and momentum among certain brands and certain digital properties, that that would probably imply that those companies are doing well. And that's signal. That's the first signal to us that we're potentially on to an interesting stock story. It's not the only signal, uh, but it's sort of step one. And hey, can you find companies that have interesting digital momentum? Yeah, I mean, and I think what's interesting too with what you and the, and your group is doing is it's one thing. I mean, I could have ac- a lot of people could have access to this data, but the ability to actually take the data and then use it and come up with some sort of a strategy is is a little more involved than than just having access to the data, right? Oh, for for sure, right? So so first off, I mean, the set of skills you've got to have to be able to work with this. I'm, I'm very lucky to be working with just a handful of brilliant uh, uh, data scientists who actually have experience working in corporate America in marketing departments, right, of actually working with this data. So, so what are the hurdles to sort of, you know, being good with this data? Well, first, you've got to actually understand the kind of data that it is, right? So, so by kind of data, I just mean market, the marketing world in general and how the marketing world measures this and all of the different uh, vendors and sources for this kind of data. I mean, having experience actually working with marketing analytics and marketing data, that's step one. But then step two is, you need to actually have real database experience, right? You've got to have you got to have you know a database uh, analyst, database administrator type of capabilities, those sort of engineering uh, abilities to be able to work with lots of data, be able to move a lot of a lot of data around. You also then uh, need to have pretty good experience working with non-standard or unstructured data, right? Because about twenty percent of all the data we work with is actually unstructured, and so. You know, unless you've actually spent time in corporate America working with data, you, 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 know, you wouldn't have a lot of experience working with this sort of unstructured data. And then the last thing is, it's one thing to, to have worked with marketing analytics or been a consumer of marketing analytics. It's another person to actually create the analytics. So to have the kind of machine learning uh, and uh, analytical skills, ability to work with the kind of tools that we work with here, the, the SQL, the SAS, the Ensemble, the, the, all of the different tool sets that are involved in uh, actually getting us to uh, interesting insights about which companies are driving a lot of traction from online and which ones aren't. It takes all of those skill sets. And many companies would typically source those schools, all those skill sets I just said from two or three different people, right? That's how different these schools, these skill sets tend to be. And yet we've, we're really lucky. Like our, our, our two chief data scientists actually have all of those skill sets, right? And, uh, and so you know, that, that basically creates a very, you know, a, a great advantage for our team in terms of being able to produce a lot of, inter- of interesting insights and be able to keep our, uh, our, our tools and our suites and our strategies on the cutting edge. Yeah, I mean, I, I can tell everyone listening, I spent some time at your office uh, several, I guess it was last year at some point, and, you know, just, just take, you were taking us through some of the process and it, it's really impressive, but it's really intensive. Not everybody could do it. And I think what's, what's interesting about what you're doing, you mentioned the universe of 3000 companies, um, maybe talk a little bit about, I know, you, you know, the demand side, uh, all of the, the signals or all the signs that people leave behind on the web, but then also you're looking at earnings and, and really I've heard you explain this. You're sort of looking for surprises, things that a change in the trend, right? 
No, that's right. So you, you, I'm going to cover two things there, right? Like the first thing you said is, you know, we're really doing this at scale across the Russell 3000. That's actually one of the things that really sets us apart. There are a fair number of hedge funds on Wall Street who try to collect the data I'm describing for, say, 50 or 100 of the most traded stocks, right? Apple and Netflix and Microsoft and a lot of, you know, very intensive e-commerce companies uh, that have big brands and they try to collect all this data and they try to glean insight into trading on just those 50 to 100, right? And instead, our approach is we're going to collect it for the entire Russell 3000, right? And the thousands of brands that are associated uh, with the Russell 3000. And that's really what defines our universe of, of, of being able to find companies with the interesting momentum, either positive or negative momentum, right? Because we run both a long short and a long strategy. And so on the long short side, we like to find companies that have poor momentum, right? Or downward momentum. But once you've found that momentum, well, that's not enough to, to cause us to want to trade that stock, right? Like you just said a minute ago, we're looking for the surprise factor. So what makes it tradable and the ability to find a surprise is that the uh, is that our uh, our estimate of the companies uh, when we look at our you know our view of their momentum and we turn our view of their momentum into an estimate of their revenue and EPS that we compare that to what Wall Street expects right what is the what you take all of the Wall Street analysts together and you look at their consensus and you look at the distribution of their consensus and you can say to yourself how divergent is our view based on the digital compared to Wall Street's view and of course. Our view of the revenue and EPS based on the digital is based on a whole series of machine learning algorithms that basically say, hey, look at all the past times that these digital signals showed the kind of uh, uh, measurements they're showing right now and find correlation between those changes in the digital footprints, those changes in the digital markers and changes in the company's revenue and establish whether that's a strong correlation or not. And when it is, right, use it to, to, to forecast out the revenue and EPS. And when ours significantly diverges from Wall Street, that's a trading opportunity because it, it basically says we, we think that this company is you know, producing or selling a lot more widgets or whatever product it sells than Wall Street thinks it, it, it is. And if we're right, eventually that information will make its way into the market. It makes its way into the market several ways, right? Uh, suppliers might announce their earnings first. And, and so people realize, oh, the supplier to so-and-so company sold a lot of, uh, of uh, microchips or wheat or whatever it might be that they sell. And that tells you that, okay, well, everybody down the supply chain probably is selling a lot more too because they, they, they are the people who are buying that input. Uh, or it could be a competitor analysis first. And that gives you some insight into whether or not all boats are rising in the same tide. Or the company might pre-announce or the company might whisper a number to the street, right? CFOs might uh, uh, selectively leak it. You know, they're not supposed to do that, but we all know that, that information gets out of companies. And in fact, just employees that work there might occasionally, you know, tell a friend or a loved one, you know, maybe we really had a great quarter. We're going to announce really good earnings. You know, I'm just telling you to let you know, right? Don't trade on it or anything. But, but the reality is that information gets into the market. And wh whatever caused that information to get in the market, that's what's going to start to propel the stock forward. And analysts might even do their homework and just figure out, Hey, you know, through all my channel checks, I'm realizing this company had a lot of clients come, you know, come to their properties or, or engage with them last last quarter. That's going to imply a lot of revenue. I should probably lift my numbers, right? And all those things combine to create uh, uh, those, you know, the lift in the stock that we want to see because we're going to buy it, or the decline in the stock if we're going to short it. And so that's really what we're looking for is that surprise factor. We want to see that divergence, right? We're going to arbitrage that divergence and. 
you know, we've been very, very right about finding surprises, right? That, that when we get into a company, all the analyst consensus might be at, at, at you know, 100. But by the time the earnings come, uh, the all the analyst consensus has moved up to 110 or 115 or 120, or maybe they haven't, but then the company announces a 110 or a 115 or a 120, you know, something 10 or 15% higher than what they expected. And that creates opportunity for us. That's how we trade. You know, I, I'm, I'm sure whether or not you follow the the political landscape or not, uh, Donald Trump, President Trump recently, I think he was talking about, hey, let's not do earnings every three months or quarterly. Let's do it every six months. I mean, if that happened, I mean, one, well, whether it's a good idea or not, that's another no discussion. But how would that affect the things you're doing with with earnings? Yeah, so I, I won't weigh in on whether I think it's a good idea or not. I have an opinion there, but I, it, it's more, you know, it's, it's just my opinion. So I won't weigh in there. I will, I will weigh in first on what I think that would do to markets, right? So I do think actually uh, what it would do is, you know, I think, I think if I remember the politics of it, right, uh, um, Donald Trump wants to do it because he wants companies to be able to focus on the longer view. And with the longer view, they will presumably hire more people, right? It's a, it's a jobs game. It's a jobs number. You want to drive more employment uh, in the U.S. And so, if they don't, if they only have to think about the longer term and not the short term, you know, they, they have uh, they they can when they think that way, they'll they'll be more likely to put capital against job producing projects. But the reality is, is investors still need to invest in the company, and investors want information. And whenever you, whenever a, a company gives less information about what it does or the risks of investing it, or it's more opaque about its business, by definition, its investors are going to raise their cost of capital. They're going to say, well, listen, you're going to give me less information. I need to be paid more for the risk of having less information, right? If you gave me information every day about how your business is going and I can invest based on it, that would be the lowest risk approach. If you give it to me quarterly, the way we do it now, that's sort of the next level of risk. If you actually only give it to me every other quarter, you're raising my risk as an investor. So I think it's going to increase the cost of capital. We know what increasing the cost of capital does to a company's investment profile it tends to reduce it, right? I mean, you've now got to find projects that can that can cross a higher threshold or a higher hurdle. So I'm not sure it'll actually have the intended out, out, outcome or output that the, the president wants. But that that said, he only asked the SEC to look at it. And so I, I suppose they'll look at it. What I would just tell you is in a world, uh, uh, the, my best quote for this one is, um, in the land of the blind, the man with one eye is king. Right. And in this particular case, we would be the man with one eye. Right. We would have a digital view that's fairly up to date. I mean, we, you know, we we buy this digital data. Some of it is delivered to us uh, daily, some weekly, some of it only monthly. Right. But we would have this regular recurring panel or view of who's driving customers to their to their website and who isn't. Right. Uh, and in that world, I would actually now have more insight into who's doing well uh, than the marketplace has, because the marketplace has to now wait an extra three months compared to what it did before to get its information about how well a company is doing. And so I would look at it and say, I, I now am given even more of an advantage over what I had before. Right. So it would be good. The other thing I would say about it that would make it good for me and our strategy is uh, that. Wall Street and investors will probably rely even more on the analyst view, right, of the company in a world in which they're only going to get the earnings every six months instead of every three months. You got to say, well, okay, there are people who are paid just to follow this thing and keep models on it and publish what they think the numbers are. 
And so in a world where there's less information, the market investors are going to look towards where they, can they get the information? Well, where is the standard place they can get information today? They can get it from, anal- from the analysts. But, but what about this change would actually make the analysts any better at their job than they were before? Nothing, right? In fact, you could argue it would make their job harder. And yet Wall Street's going to lean even more right, on what they say about the company. That's only going to give me even more arbitrage opportunities, right? So, so in the end, I would look at this and say, okay, it, you know, it probably gives me more advantage over the rest of the market. So it's probably not a bad thing, but it also creates fewer earnings events. And when the earnings events occur, they'll probably be more volatile. If a company surprises, it'll probably be to the, to the good side it'll probably be rewarded even more on that earnings day than it was before because it's a six-month wait. If it misses to the downside, it'll probably be punished even more, right? So it should create more volatile trading opportunities. I think in the end, it's probably a slight net advantage to us if this were to happen, but I would probably prefer that it did, right? I, I think you know our models are built and calibrated around you know quarterly rotations and quarterly changes in, in expectations, and I think that's something we're well, well suited to, and I would just as soon have it stay. But you know, that said, we would we believe we would do well even if it occurred. You know, the other thing that's that's sort of different about what you're doing. You mentioned the universe of three thousand companies. We all know that the you know anyone who who goes into a four hundred one k these days is auto enrolled in some sort of a target date fund. Typically, you've only got you know the S and P five hundred or or a more. I, I'm not going to say a narrow based index, but you know, the Dow only has 30, the S&P has 500. Your universe is much bigger. So that sort of seems like an edge as well, because you're looking at companies that, that not everybody's looking at, right? Yes. I mean, I, uh, I, I can just put that a different way, right? Which is to say the most commonly invested indexes are, are you know, the larger cap indexes and the more traded uh, uh, vehicles. And by looking at the entire Russell 3000, we have, uh, you know, a lot of small caps, a lot of mid caps on top of the large cap names that, that everyone traditionally ends up owning in an index fund. And so, yeah, with that bigger universe, we're able to find more opportunities. Now, we actually have built our strategy to, to force it to pick companies from the large cap and companies from the mid cap and companies from the small cap. And then we exclude micro caps just because they're so volatile, right? And, and they move for lots of, lots of reasons, oftentimes better news related, not always earnings related. And so, uh, so we actually force it to get exposure to all the market caps. That's uh, an, an intentional decision on our part. Uh, because, because if you only relied on which companies are going to surprise by the most, you'd probably end up investing in nothing but small caps, right? Small caps are going to create the biggest growth deltas between what Wall Street thinks and what's, and what's actually happening because they tend to have less following on Wall Street. And yet they also are companies that can move the needle a lot easier because the denominator that's defined in moving their needle tends to be a smaller denominator. So, you know, one very successful quarter can can cause them to you know report a, a quarter over quarter, year over year returns that might be you know plus twenty percent in sales. When was the last time Walmart did plus twenty percent in sales? It hasn't happened in decades. No, no. Right? Um, so it's just easier if all we did was say let's invest in the companies that have the largest growth potential to surprise Wall Street. We would invest in nothing but small caps, but we don't want to do that. We want to make sure that. We capture all of the surprises in large caps, all of the surprises in mid caps, and all the surprises. Yeah, I mean, and thinking about, so we talked about the type of data you're doing, the the process, and then of course you're running two different strategies off this. You've got one where you're you're long only, meaning you're you're just buying the the best companies based upon what you do, and and the other one is is the long short, and and that one, Wayne, right? You're 
you're selling or shorting, hoping to profit by a company going down, not up, uh, on half for roughly half and then long the other half. So you're sort of eliminating systematic market risk. I mean, talk about you've got the data, you're doing a lot of stuff with the data, but then it's the application is the strategies. Yeah, so you're exactly right. We have a long short and the, the long only, right? Uh, and, you know, it's it's very much built so that the investor can sort of match their own risk tolerance to to uh, to w- what we're delivering. So if they say to themselves, "Hey, you know, I don't really like the idea of having you know a lot of long exposure only to to, to the growth side of the markets," uh, because I, I feel like you know if the if the market has a sharp decline, I'm going to feel it even worse in the growth side. Uh, so give me the long short because then I know there's always some short positions that are you know, going to offset losses and make money in the event that the market goes down. And so uh, the long short is sort of the more risk adjusted version. Right. Uh, But as a result, it has the potential to make money in years in which the markets go down. Right. Because the short side can outperform uh, the long side. And then the long only is for the client who says, no, actually, I'm very comfortable with how my overall portfolio is allocated and diversified. And I'm comfortable just being long the market. And so I like the long only in in that approach. And so we deliver both, and you're right on the long short, right? We, uh, you know, we're gonna have some short positions in there. Sometimes it's just gonna be short indices, right? Short index positions. Uh, oftentimes, if it's just short index positions, we're using options to deliver that short exposure. Uh, but then other times, when we really like our short signals and in individual stock names, we will short individual stock names, right? And we'll put those in the portfolio uh, for our accounts. And, you know, the majority of our business is separate accounts, so the clients can actually see. The, the individual positions that we're long and that we're short, and they can actually see what we're, uh, what our signals are telling us, uh, you know, which companies have momentum that Wall Street can't see to the upside, and which ones have momentum that Wall Street can't see to the downside. You know, I, we could probably do a separate episode, Wayne, just on on pension funds. Whenever I hear the stuff you're doing with the risk-adjusted return side, it's always interesting to me why institutions don't use something that would have somewhat close to their, you know, a target of their discount rate or maybe above or below, but but more of a smooth sort of return. But I guess that's a, an, a another episode we have to do. We, if we go down that hole, we'll never get back, Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the other thing I wanted to mention too was, and, and if we, uh, I'll get a link to and I'll link to it in the show notes. There was a, a good article in the Harvard Business Review and congrats to, to you and, and your group for getting in there. And you know, the genesis or, or the general idea behind uh, in that article was looking at, uh, and, and I'll ask you about this, I think it was Southwest Airlines, the idea of the size of a company versus the size of their digital footprint. In, in other words, how good are they about using digital? You know, talk about that a little bit. And, and doesn't that, I mean, I guess there's some companies who are better at this, but there's other companies who aren't, but that might be an opportunity, right? Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, and so let's cover both, both bases there, right? So uh, if you, you know, all things being equal, we all recognize that, you know, our interaction digitally is only going to increase, right? The percentage of commerce that's done online today, I think is just barely 10%, right? But none of us would say that 10 more years from now, it'll still only be 10%, right? It is a number that's going to keep growing. We're going to buy more and more things online, right? Uh, and more and more things are going to be pushed online and we'll buy less and less at the stores, uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll buy them online, have them shipped to us, ship them back if we don't like them. And just the increase of e-commerce potential uh, is o- that's only going to keep increasing, which is only going to keep increasing the, the need for chief marketing officers at companies to be able to measure the success of, uh, of how their advertising is doing. 
And so uh, the premise, so the premise there then is that if you're a company that's well positioned in e-commerce, then that means you're well positioned for the future. So let's take the Southwest example. I think the peer set against Southwest is maybe American Airlines, might be Delta, but the, the two of them have very similar market share, right? I think they're both in the in the mid to high teens in market share, maybe 15 to 18% US market share. But when you look at it, right, uh, while they both have the same similar market share, Southwest has a materially larger digital footprint than, than American Airlines. And they've been way more successful at driving their clients to interact with them online and buy from them online. And so what we would say is, if you had two companies all have the same exact market share, all things being equal, the one with more digital president, presence is the better company, is worth more, is better positioned for the future. That's the company you'd rather invest in, right? That Because, again, you're better positioned for the future if you've made smart investments in digital and it's turning into a strong digital footprint and that correlates well to your revenue growth. That's the company you'd rather be in. That's the company you'd rather own. Now, while that's generally true almost all of the time with almost all industries, it also means that the company that doesn't have much of a digital footprint really does have a significant opportunity to improve its lot in, in, in its particular industry if it would just make smart improvements in its digital footprint. If it would actually replicate, if American Airlines would replicate what Southwest does and make similar investments and improve its digital footprint, they would actually be better positioned to, to improve their value and win more market share. And so on the one side, you'd say the company that does digital better, all things being equal about market share, that company is worth more the company that does it more poorly has more opportunity. Now, what's the likelihood they'll make the smart investments and turn things around and improve their digital? You know, for a lot of companies, that's a hard thing to do successfully. And so they may, they may not. Certainly, they represent a bigger opportunity if you start to see the signals that they're turning things around. Then I'd say that, that, that tends to be the investment opportunity. And then that's actually ultimately what we're looking for in our digital signals, right? Is, is a company like American Airlines improving its digital prospects and historically, as they improve digital prospects, does that correlate well to revenue growth? And when it, or, or even for them or for their peer sets and their competitors, and if it does, when we see it and Wall Street doesn't, that'll be the sign that that's a company we want to invest in. That sort of is the whole core of our premise of, of why we do this kind of analytics and why we turn it into stock decisions is um, all companies are affected by digital commerce and e-commerce and the need to push their products online. Uh, as you can, if you can measure the effectiveness of that, you will find trading. Yeah, I think it's a good article. I hope everyone has a chance to, uh, I'll put in the link. Uh, I can't let you go though, Wayne, without asking you about some of the stuff that's in, uh, in the news regarding privacy. And we know that Facebook has been in the news. There seems to be this, um, this awareness, um, I'll call it awareness by the public or at least questioning, Hey, what do these companies know about me? Uh, but you're using big data, and I heard you, you know, use my example. You don't know necessarily that that I'm the one who bought the pair of running shoes in Arizona. Is there anything with privacy? Could that kind of cut into what you're able to do, or or big data is really different? Yeah. So, like I said earlier, right? We don't we don't buy personally identifiable information. We buy information that's already been rolled up to, you know, say it's you know it's you know, 1.1 million, you know, web bounces or 200,000 web visits or, you know, this many people launched a secure session or this was the bounce rate or uh, this many people followed or unfollowed without actually, you know, getting it down to a, a 
even a zip code level, we don't analyze it at, right? We, we analyze it at a more aggregate, or we buy the data at a more aggregated level. And so that data will always exist, and no one will ever contend that that data is violating any, anyone's privacy. But we shouldn't kid ourselves to not recognize that the fact that someone knows what that traffic is at some level means that it, initially it started at the, at, at, you know, the Derek Moore level, right? And so someone somewhere knew that Derek Moore did it, added it to the list of the rest of people in Arizona, and then added it to the rest of the people in the list of the U.S., and that got us to the number of total U.S. Uh, uh, Internet users that you know, might have visited the Nike website. And so um, if you have more rights and more ability to sort of block that interaction, that certainly could start to limit data collection and could start to impinge on some of our uh, data sources. However, what I'll just say is in a world in which e-commerce is only increasing, right, in terms of its reach to us and its capacity, what I would say to you is those chief marketing officers, they're not going to be satisfied with less data about who their clients are and how they interact with their clients. They're only going to be satisfied with more data, right? And so I, I feel very buffeted by the fact that the appetite for this kind of data is only going to increase as e-commerce actually increases. And so that being the case, I feel pretty certain that even though some data sources might get closed off and might, might get shut down over time, that others will get lifted up and replaced. And the net of those things, right, um, will still keep us in a really good spot where we get a lot of good insight into what customers are doing. And I actually think the net of it will probably actually even be only more right uh, data it'll probably net to more even with some people starting to find ways to self-select out of being tracked or or being monitored by the companies that they interact with you know it's interesting in, in the remaining moments I, I was just thinking as we're talking i can't believe it's been has it been 10 years wayne since uh lehman went down was that mm. and yeah it's uh you know you and i are both in the markets and and both involved in it i can't believe it's been 10 years and I sort of, I, I always, I was reflecting the other day about what's changed and, and some of the approaches to investing haven't. I mean, people still are using same old asset allocation as always. I feel like strategies like yours, the things, you know, um, that were in your book, you know, buy and hedge. I mean, we're, we're using those things, but I think the general markets, like there's still a lot of opportunity for people to, to use alternatives. Um, it hasn't happened yet though. Well, um, I do think I do think alternatives continue to increase as a as a portion of people's uh, allocations. But I think that's the important lesson there, right? Is that asset allocation is important, but what makes it what makes something what really important is important about asset allocation is non correlated uh, holdings, right? Things that don't move uh, together in price, and so that's why I think finding alternative uh, uh, sources, right, uh, of return that are not correlated to traditional stocks uh, or bonds uh, or commodities and the other, the other more traditional asset classes that people invest in over the years, that becomes important. And so that's where I think they can, they can look at things like the buy and hedge or they can look at our internet advantage strategy, you know, which has a, the long short has a you know, lower correlation to the market uh, than, you know, uh, traditional stock strategies. And so I think that's where we actually can be very good at helping to diversify a portfolio. And I hope that, uh, advisors and investors will hear this and think about using us in that way. Yeah, we we could go on forever, Wayne. We're going to have to have you back. I was going to say, by the way, I, I had hair 
the last, you know, in the, the two that, but I didn't have hair back then. <laughs> I just can't believe it's been 10 years, but, but listen, Wayne, this has been uh, a treat. Uh, hopefully everyone enjoys this. We'll definitely have to have you back on, but this is a very interesting area. And I think, you know, the work you're doing, and like I said, I've, I've seen, uh, I've been at your office and, and it's quite impressive. So Wayne, thanks again for uh, coming on. Thanks for having me, Derek. All right. Take care, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye.